Part Four, Chapter Two, Part One of A Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones. Chapter Two American Church and Slavery, Part One. In the first place, have any of these opinions ever been treated in the church as heresies, and the teachers of them been subjected to the censures with which it is thought proper to visit heresy? After a somewhat extended examination upon the subject, the writer has been able to discover but one instance of this sort. It may be possible that such cases have existed in other denominations which have escaped inquiry. A clergyman in the Cincinnati N.S. Presbytery maintained the doctrine that slaveholding was justified by the Bible, and for persistence in teaching this sentiment was suspended by that presbytery. He appealed to Synod, and the decision was confirmed by the Cincinnati Synod. The New School General Assembly, however, reversed this decision of the presbytery and restored the standing of the clergyman. The presbytery on its part refused to receive him back, and he was received into the old-school church. The Presbyterian Church has probably exceeded all other churches of the United States in its zeal for doctrinal opinions. This church has been shaken and agitated to its very foundation with questions of heresy. But, except in this individual case, it is not known that any of these principles which have been asserted by southern presbyterian bodies and individuals have ever been discussed in the general assembly as matters of heresy about the time that smiley's pamphlet came out the presbyterian church was convulsed with the trial of the rev albert barnes for certain alleged heresies these heresies related to the federal headship of adam the propriety of imputing his sin to all his posterity, and the question whether men have any ability of any kind to obey the commandments of God. For advancing certain sentiments on these topics, Mr. Barnes was silenced by the vote of the synod to which he belonged, and his trial in the General Assembly on these points was the all-engrossing topic in the Presbyterian Church for some time. The Rev. Dr. L. Beecher went through a trial with reference to similar opinions. During all this time no notice was taken of the heresy, if such it be, that the right to buy, sell, and hold men for purposes of gain was expressly given by God. Although that heresy was publicly promulgated in the same Presbyterian church by Mr. Smiley and the presbyteries with which he was connected, if it be accounted for by saying that the question of slavery is a question of practical morals and not of dogmatic theology we are then reminded that questions of morals of far less magnitude have been discussed with absorbing interest the old-school presbyterian church in whose communion the greater part of the slaveholding presbyterians of the south are found has never felt called upon 
to discipline its members for upholding a system which denies legal marriage to all slaves yet this church was agitated to its very foundation by the discussion of a question of morals which an impartial observer would only consider of far less magnitude namely whether a man might lawfully marry his deceased wife's sister for all time all the strength and attention of the church seemed concentrated upon this important subject the trial went from presbytery to synod and from synod to general assembly and ended with deposing a very respectable minister for this crime rev robert p breckinridge d d a member of the old school assembly has thus described the state of the slave population as to their marriage relations Quote, the system of slavery denies to a whole class of human beings the sacredness of marriage and of home compelling them to live in a state of concubinage for in the eye of the law no colored slave man is the husband of any wife in particular nor any slave woman the wife of any husband in particular no slave man is the father of any children in particular and no slave child is the child of any parent in particular now had this church considered the fact that three million men and women were by the laws of the land obliged to live in this manner as of equally serious consequence it is evident from the ingenuity argument vehemence biblical research and untiring zeal which they bestowed upon mr mcqueen's trial that they could have made a very strong case with regard to this also the history of the united action of denominations which included churches both in the slave and free states is a melancholy exemplification to a reflecting mind of that gradual deterioration of the moral sense which results from admitting any compromise however slight with an acknowledged sin the best minds in the world cannot bear such a familiarity without injury to the moral sense the facts of the slave system and of the slave laws when presented to disinterested judges in europe have excited a universal outburst of horror yet in assemblies composed of the wisest and best clergymen of america these things have been discussed from year to year and yet brought no results that have in the slightest degree lessened the evil the reason is this a portion of the members of these bodies had pledged themselves to sustain the system and peremptorily to refuse and put down all discussion of it and the other part of the body did not consider this stand so taken as being of sufficient vital consequence to authorize separation nobody will doubt that had the southern members taken such a stand against the divinity of our lord the division would have been immediate and unanimous but yet the southern members do maintain the right to buy and sell lease hire and mortgage multitudes of men and women whom with the same breath they declare to be members of their churches and true christians the bible declares all such that they are temples of the holy ghost that they are members 
of Christ's body, of his flesh and bones. It is not the doctrine that men may lawfully sell the members of Christ, his body, his flesh and bones, for purposes of gain, as really a heresy, as a denial, as a divinity of Christ. And is it not a dishonor to him who is over all, God blessed for ever, to tolerate this dreadful opinion, with its more dreadful consequences, while the smallest heresies concerning the imputation of Adam's sin are pursued with eager vehemence? If the history of the action of all the bodies thus united can be traced downwards, we shall find that, by reason of this tolerance of an admitted sin, the anti-slavery testimony has every year grown weaker and weaker. If we look over the history of all denominations, we shall see that at first they used very stringent language with relation to slavery. This is particularly the case with the Methodist and Presbyterian bodies, and for that reason we select these two as examples. The Methodist Society, especially as organized by John Wesley, was an anti-slavery society, and the Book of Discipline contained the most positive statutes against slaveholding. The history of the successive resolutions of the conference of this church is very striking. In 1780, before the church was regularly organized in the United States, they resolved as follows. Resolution the conference acknowledges that slavery is contrary to the laws of God, man, and nature, and hurtful to society, contrary to the dictates of conscience and true religion, and doing what we would not others should do unto us. End of resolution. In 1784, when the church was fully organized, rules were adopted prescribing the times at which members who were already slaveholders should emancipate their slaves these rules were succeeded by the following quote, every person concerned who will not comply with these rules shall have liberty quietly to withdraw from our society within the twelve months following the notice being given him as aforesaid otherwise the assistance shall exclude him from the society End of quote. no person holding slaves shall in future be admitted into society or to the lord's supper till he previously comply with these rules concerning slavery those who buy sell or give slaves away unless on purpose to free them shall be expelled immediately in eighteen o one we declare that we are more than ever convinced of the great evil of African slavery which still exists in these United States. Every member of the society who sells a slave shall immediately, after full proof, be excluded from the society, and so forth. The annual conferences are directed to draw up addresses for the gradual emancipation of the slaves to the legislature. Proper committees shall be appointed by the annual conferences, out of the most respectable of our friends, for the conducting of the business, 
and the presiding elders, deacons, and traveling preachers, shall procure as many proper signatures as possible to the addresses, and give all the assistance in their power, in every respect, to aid the committees and to further the blessed undertaking. Let this be continued from year to year, till the desired end be accomplished. In 1836, let us notice the change. The General Conference held its annual session in Cincinnati and resolved as follows. Resolved by the delegates of the annual conferences in General Conference assembled that they are decidedly opposed to modern abolitionism and wholly disclaim any right, wish, or intention to interfere in the civil and political relation between master and slave as it exists in the slaveholding states of this union end of resolution these resolutions were passed by a very large majority an address was received from the wesleyan methodist conference in england affectionately remonstrating on the subject of slavery the conference refused to publish it in the pastoral address to the churches are these passages. It cannot be unknown to you that the question of slavery in the United States, by the constitutional compact which binds us together as a nation, is left to be regulated by the several state legislatures themselves, and thereby is put beyond the control of the general government, as well as that of all ecclesiastical bodies. It being manifest that in the slaveholding states themselves the entire responsibility of its existence or non-existence rests with those state legislatures. These facts, which are only mentioned here as a reason for the friendly admonition which we wish to give you, constrain us as your pastors who are called to watch over your souls as they must give account to exhort you to abstain from all abolition movements and associations and to refrain from patronizing any of their publications and so forth the subordinate conferences showed the same spirit in eighteen thirty six the new york annual conference resolved that no one should be elected a deacon or elder in the church unless he would give a pledge to the church that he would refrain from discussing this subject. In 1838 the conference resolved, as the sense of this conference, that any of its members or probationers who shall patronize Zion's watchman, either by writing in commendation of its character, by circulating it, recommending it to our people, or procuring subscribers, or by collecting or remitting monies, shall be deemed guilty of indiscretion, and dealt with accordingly. It will be recollected that Zion's Watchman was edited by Leroy Sunderland, for whose abduction the state of Alabama had offered $50,000. In 1840, the General Conference at Baltimore passed the resolution that we have already quoted forbidding preachers to allow colored persons to give testimony in their churches. It has been computed that about 80,000 people were deprived of the right of testimony by this act. 
the Methodist Church subsequently broke into a Northern and Southern Conference. The Southern Conference is avowedly all pro-slavery, and the Northern Conference has still in its communion slave-holding conferences and members. Of the Northern Conferences, one of the largest, the Baltimore, passed the following. Resolved that this conference disclaims having any fellowship with abolitionism. On the contrary, while it is determined to maintain its well-known and long-established position by keeping the traveling preachers composing its own body free from slavery, it is also determined not to hold connection with any ecclesiastical body that shall make non-slaveholding a condition of membership in the church, but to stand by and maintain the discipline as it is. End of resolution. The following extract is made from an address to the Philadelphia Annual Conference to the societies under its care dated Wilmington, Delaware, April 7, 1847. If the plan of separation gives us the pastoral care of you, it remains to inquire whether we have done anything, as a conference, or as men, to forfeit your confidence and affection. We are not advised that even in the great excitement, which has distressed you for some months past, any one has impeached our moral conduct, or charged us with unsoundness in doctrine, or corruption, or tyranny in the administration of discipline. But we learn that the simple cause of the unhappy excitement among you is that some suspect us, or affect to suspect us, of being abolitionists. Yet no particular act of the conference, or any particular member thereof, is adduced as the ground of the erroneous and injurious suspicion. We would ask you, brethren, whether the conduct of our ministry among you for sixty years past ought not to be sufficient to protect us from this charge, whether the question we have been accustomed for a few years past to put to candidates for admission among us, namely, are you an abolitionist, and without each one answered in the negative, he was not received, ought not to protect us from the charge? whether the action of the last conference on this particular matter ought not to satisfy any fair and candid mind that we are not and do not desire to be abolitionists. We cannot see how we can be regarded as abolitionists without the ministers of the Methodist Episcopal Church South being considered in the same light. Wishing you all heavenly benedictions, we are, dear brethren, Yours in Christ Jesus, J. P. Durbin, J. Kennedy, Ignatius T. Cooper, William H. Gilder, Joseph Castle. End of declaration. These facts sufficiently define the position of the Methodist Church. The history is melancholy, but instructive. The history of the Presbyterian Church is also of interest. In 1793, the following note to the Eighth Commandment was inserted in the Book of Discipline as expressing the doctrine of the Church upon slaveholding. 1 Timothy 1.10 The law is made for man-stealers, 
this crime among the Jews exposed the perpetrators of it to capital punishment. Exodus 21.15 And the apostle here classes them with sinners of the first rank. The word he uses, in its original import, comprehends all who are concerned in bringing any of the human race into slavery, or in retaining them in it. Hominum pures qui servos vel liberos abdunctunt retinet vindunt vel emunt. Stealers of men are all those who bring off slaves or freemen, and keep, sell, or buy them. To steal a free man, says Grotius, is the highest kind of theft. In other instances we only steal human property, but when we steal or retain men in slavery, we seize upon those who, in common with ourselves, are constituted by the original grant lords of the earth. No rules of church discipline were enforced, and members whom this passage declared guilty of this crime remain undisturbed in its communion as ministers and elders. This inconsistency was obviated in 1816 by expunging the passage from the Book of Discipline. In 1818 it adopted an expression of its views on slavery. This document is a long one, conceived and written in a very Christian spirit. The Assembly's Digest says, page 341, that it was unanimously adopted. The following is its testimony as to the nature of slavery. We consider the voluntary enslaving of one part of the human race by another as a gross violation of the most precious and sacred rights of human nature, as utterly inconsistent with the law of God which requires us to love our neighbors as ourselves, and as totally irreconcilable with the spirit and principles of the gospel of Christ, which enjoined that all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. Slavery creates a paradox in the moral system. It exhibits rational, accountable, and immoral beings in such circumstances as scarcely to leave them the power of moral action. It exhibits them as dependent upon the will of others, whether they shall receive religious instruction, whether they shall know and worship the true God, whether they shall enjoy the ordinances of the gospel, whether they shall perform the duties and cherish the endearments of husbands and wives, parents and children, neighbors and friends, whether they shall preserve their chastity and purity, or regard the dictates of justice and humanity. Such are some of the consequences of slavery, consequences not imaginary, but which connect themselves with its very existence. The evils to which the slave is always exposed often take place in fact, and in their very worst degree and form, and where all of them do not take place, as we rejoice to say that in many instances, through the influence of the principles of humanity and religion, on the minds of masters they do not, still the slave is deprived of his natural right, degraded as a human being, 
and exposed to the danger of passing into the hands of a master who may inflict upon them all the hardships and injuries which inhumanity and avarice may suggest. End of declaration. This language was certainly decided, and it was unanimously adopted, by slaveholders and non-slaveholders. Certainly, one might think the time of redemption was drawing nigh. The declaration goes on to say, It is manifestly the duty of all Christians who enjoy the light of the present day, when the inconsistency of slavery both with the dictates of humanity and religion has been demonstrated and is generally seen and acknowledged, to use honest, earnest, unwearied endeavors to correct the errors of former times, and as speedily as possible, to efface this blot on our holy religion, and obtain the complete abolition of slavery throughout Christendom and throughout the world. End of declaration. Here we have the Presbyterian Church, slaveholding and non-slaveholding, virtually formed into one great abolition society, as we have seen the Methodist was. The assembly goes on to state that the slaves are not at present prepared to be free, that they tenderly sympathize with the portion of the church and country that has had this evil entailed upon them, where, as they say, quote, a great and the most virtuous part of the community abhor slavery and wish its extermination, close quote. But they exhort them to commence immediately the work of instructing slaves with a view to preparing them for freedom, and to let no greater delay take place than a regard to public welfare indispensably demands. To be governed by no other considerations than an honest and impartial regard to the happiness of the injured party, uninfluenced by the expense and inconvenience which such regard may involve it warns against unduly extending this plea of necessity against making it a cover for the love and practice of slavery it ends by recommending that any one who shall sell a fellow-christian without his consent be immediately disciplined and suspended if we consider that this was unanimously adopted by slaveholders and all and grant, as we certainly do, that it was adopted in all honesty and good faith, we shall surely expect something from it. We should expect forthwith the organizing of a set of common schools for the slave children, for an efficient religious ministration, for an entire discontinuance of trading in Christian slaves, for laws which make the family relations sacred. Was any such thing done or attempted? Alas, two years after this came the admission of Missouri and the increase of demand in the southern slave market and the internal slave trade. Instead of school teachers, they had slave traders. Instead of gathering schools, they gathered slave coffles. Instead of building schoolhouses, they built slave pens and slave prisons, jails, barracoons, factories, 
or whatever the trade pleased to term them, and so went the plan of gradual emancipation. In 1834, sixteen years after, a committee of the Senate of Kentucky, in which state slavery is generally said to exist in its mildest form, appointed to make a report on the condition of the slaves, gave the following picture of their condition. First as to their spiritual condition, they say, after making all reasonable allowances, our colored population can be considered at the most but semi-heathen. As to their temporal state, brutal stripes, and all the various kinds of personal indignities are not the only species of cruelty which slavery licenses. The law does not recognize the family relations of the slave, and extends to him no protection in the enjoyment of domestic endearments. The members of a slave family may be forcibly separated, so that they shall never more meet until the final judgment and cupidity often induces the masters to practice what the law allows. Brothers and sisters, parents and children, husbands and wives, are torn asunder and permitted to see each other no more. These acts are daily occurring in the midst of us. The shrieks and the agony often witnessed on such occasions proclaim, with a trumpet tongue, the iniquity and cruelty of our system. The cries of these sufferers go up to the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. There is not a neighborhood where these heart-rending scenes are not displayed. There is not a village or road that does not behold the sad procession of manacled outcasts whose chains and mournful countenances tell that they are exiled by force from all that their hearts hold dear. Our church, years ago, raised its voice of solemn warning against this flagrant violation of every principle of mercy, justice, and humanity. Yet we blush to announce to you and to the world that this warning has been often disregarded even by those who hold to our communion. Cases have occurred in our own denomination where professors of the religion of mercy have torn the mother from her children and sent her into a merciless and returnless exile. Yet acts of discipline have rarely followed such conduct. End of Declaration Honorable James G. Birney, for years a resident of Kentucky, in his pamphlet amends the word rarely by substituting never. What could show more plainly the utter inefficiency of the past act of the assembly and the necessity of adopting some measures more efficient? In 1835, therefore, the subject was urged upon the General Assembly, entreating them to carry out the principles and designs they had avowed in 1818. Mr. Stewart of Illinois in a speech he made upon the subject, said, I hope this assembly are prepared to come out fully and declare their sentiments that slaveholding is a most flagrant and heinous sin. Let us not pass it by in this indirect way 
while so many thousands and tens of thousands of our fellow-creatures are writhing under the lash, often inflicted, too, by ministers and elders of the Presbyterian Church. In this church a man may take a free-born child, force it away from its parents, to whom God gave it in charge, saying, Bring it up for me, and sell it as a beast, or hold it in perpetual bondage, and not only escape corporeal punishment, but really be esteemed an excellent Christian. Nay, even ministers of the gospel and doctors of divinity may engage in this unholy traffic, and yet sustain their high and holy calling. Elders, ministers, and doctors of divinity are with both hands engaged in the practice. One would have thought facts like these, stated in a body of Christians, were enough to wake the dead. But, alas, we can become accustomed to very awful things. No action was taken upon these remonstrances except to refer them to a committee to be reported on at the next session in 1836. The moderator of the assembly in 1836 was a slaveholder, Dr. T. S. Witherspoon, the same who said to the editor of The Emancipator, quote, I draw my warrant from the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to hold my slaves in bondage. The principle of holding the heathen in bondage is recognized by God. When the tardy process of the law is too long in redressing our grievances, we at the South have adopted the summary process of Judge Lynch. The majority of the committee appointed made a report as follows. Begin report. Whereas the subject of slavery is inseparably connected with the laws of many states in this Union, with which it is by no means proper for an ecclesiastical judicature to interfere, and involves many considerations in regard to which great diversity of opinion and intensity of feeling are known to exist in the churches represented in this assembly. And, whereas, there is great reason to believe that any action on the part of this assembly in reference to this subject would tend to distract and divide our churches, and would probably in no wise promote the benefit of those whose welfare is immediately contemplated in the memorials in question, therefore resolved, 1. That it is not expedient for the assembly to take any further order in relation to this subject. 2. That as the notes which have been expunged from our public formularies, and which some of the memorials referred to the committee request to have restored, were introduced irregularly, never had the sanction of the church, and therefore never possessed any authority. The General Assembly has no power, nor would they think it expedient to assign them a place in the authorized standards of the church. The minority of the committee the Reverend Messrs. Dickey and Beeman reported as follows. Resolved. 1. That the buying, selling, or holding of a human being as property is in the sight of God a heinous sin, and ought to subject the doer of it to the censures of the church. 
two that it is the duty of every one and especially every christian who may be involved in this sin to free himself from its entanglement without delay three that it is the duty of every one especially of every christian in the meekness and firmness of the gospel to plead the cause of the poor and needy by testifying against the principle and practice of slaveholding and to use his best endeavors to deliver the church of god from the evil and to bring about the emancipation of the slaves in these united states and throughout the world the slaveholding delegates to the number of forty-eight met apart and resolved that if the general assembly shall undertake to exercise authority upon the subject of slavery so as to make it an immorality or shall in any way declare that christians are criminal in holding slaves that a declaration shall be presented by the southern delegation declining their jurisdiction in the case and our determination not to submit to such decision in report in view of these conflicting reports the assembly resolved as follows inasmuch as the constitution of the presbyterian church in its preliminary and fundamental principles declares that no church judicatories ought to pretend to make laws to bind the conscience in virtue of their own authority and as the urgency of the business of the assembly and the shortness of time during which they can continue in session render it impossible to deliberate and decide judiciously on the subject of slavery in its relation to the church therefore resolved that this whole subject be indefinitely postponed end of part four chapter two american church and slavery part one